edge. Your statutes are wonderful, therefore I obey them. The unfolding of your words give light, gives understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant, longing for your commands. Turn to me and have mercy on me, as you always do to those who love your name. Direct my footsteps according to your word. Let no sin rule over me. Redeem me from the oppression of men, that I may obey your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant. Teach me your decrees. Streams of tears flow from my eyes, for your law is not obeyed. That's pretty wonderful. All right, here we go. We got today is 13 November. God December. is in the business. What's that? December. You're about behind. Oh, yeah. Uh, no. It is December. <laughs> well, why is that in November? Why? God, you know, and when I'm typing the number of sermons, I keep typing Leviticus whatever. And then I have to correct it on all of my things before I post it to YouTube. So, duh. December 13th. Not many people believe they have heard the voice of God. In 1292, Pope Nicholas IV died. For almost two and a half years, the papal throne remained vacant while the cardinals bickered among themselves trying to elect the next pope. They were divided along family lines, the cardinals of the Kalana family against the cardinals of the Orsini family. Finally, one of the cardinals who himself wanted to be pope, Benedict Gaetani, reported that he had received a letter from a monk well known for his holiness who prophesied divine retribution on the cardinals if they did not soon choose a pope. When questioned, Gaetani identified the monk as the renowned hermit Peter of Morone. In a surprise compromise move, the cardinals decided to select the hermit monk Peter of Morone as the next pope. In the stifling heat of summer heat of 1294, the delegates sent by the cardinals made a 150-mile journey and a thousand-foot ascent up a mountain to inform the dumbstruck hermit that he had been elected pope. Scraggy and unwashed, 85-year-old Peter Marone declined at first, but was finally persuaded to accept and took the name Celestine V. With the new pope came a few changes. Celestine, who was a relatively uneducated man, could not understand Latin, so Italian became the language of official communication. Disapproving of the licentiousness of Rome, he made Naples the seat of the church. To make himself comfortable in the five-story castle that was to be his home, Celestine had a wooden cell constructed in one of the rooms. He avoided ceremonial banquets, preferring to live on bread and water in his cell. <laughs> he commenced a program of giving away the church's money to the poor. The cardinals soon realized that they had made a ter <laughs> terrible mistake in their selection of Celestine and were afraid that he would, be, he would bankrupt the church. In 1294, can't take care of the poor. I mean, that, absolutely not. Decided to take things into his own hands. He pierced a hole in the wall of Celestine's cell and put a small tube in it. In the middle of the night, Gaetani hissed into Celestine's cell. Celestine, Celestine, lay down your office. It's too great a burden for you to bear. Isn't that funny? Oh Moses, Moses is our, that's our sermon title for uh, Sunday. Moses, heavy burden. Okay, so this guy's burden too heavy to bear. The Cardinal continued this for many nights until Celestine, Believing he had heard the voice of God himself, decided that he had better obey and resign from his papal office. A mere 15 weeks after he was brought down from his mountain sanctuary to celebrate his coronation, Pope Celestine V called his cardinals together to announce his plan to resign. 
while he had them assembled, he also took the opportunity to exhort them to send their mistresses to nunneries and to live in poverty as Jesus had. On December 13, 1294, after reading the formula form, after reading the formula of abdication written for him by Cardinal Gaetani, Pope Celestine V officially became Peter of Morone once again. After Celestine's resignation, the cardinals quickly elected Cardinal Benedict Gaetani as his replacement. Gaetani took the name of Pope Boniface VIII. Peter of Morone wanted to return to his mountaintop in Morone, but Boniface, fearing that Peter might return one day to expose the new pope's foul play, had him imprisoned in the castle of Fumone. Peter died two years later, still a captive. Reflection, the story of the rise and fall of Pope Celestine V sounds very bizarre to us today. What do you believe God's purposes were in allowing this to happen? What lessons are to be learned from these events? Stay away from the Catholic Church, for one. God, uh, Romans one twenty four. God let them go ahead and do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. So that's pretty funny, actually. Um, I don't know why that's in a Reformation uh, annual reading, but it was... That's comic it, it, relief. Yeah, it is comic relief. That's our annual comic relief. So uh, let's see here. We've got a couple prayer requests. Um, had a lady come in here before we started today when Burke was walking in, and she's in desperate need of a job, and uh, she uh, she's also looking to get her feet back into church at some point. She says, I'm just lost right now. So we talked for a while, and we'll pray for her. And uh, let's see, he won't give a name or anything, because anyway, um, I got an email. Oh, I, I guess I should say this here, maybe on, on the update. No, it was, it was uh, during the uh, Bible study. I got an email from somebody at cox.com about Paul's epistles, okay? It's somebody that listens to the uh, Bible studies because it was about Paul's epistles, and I tried to send a response twice, but it rejected both times. So if you want to email me, try a different email, and um, for some reason, whatever, but the cox.com was the, uh, the server. Would not send to him. I tried several times from Gmail, etc. It didn't work. So I apologize about that. And um, I got a prayer request about Juliana, who's flying to Mexico for eye surgery. She she had a, a pencil go into her eye a year or so ago, and it's, it has not gotten better. And we're, they're worried about her getting into altitude and losing her eye altogether while she's flying to Mexico for a surgery. So we'll add her into our prayer request as well. And I think that was the only ones that I can remember today, but we'll go ahead and pray for Lord, please uh, hear our prayers for the people that we just mentioned and for anybody else that's... Uh, going through their own trouble and trial. And Lord, we certainly know about not being able to have a job at this time. We've had that with people in the past and there are still people in the church that are looking for jobs right now. Um, one of my friends emailed me just a day ago and she's still looking for a job. And and uh, I would pray that you would provide that for her as well. And so Lord, you know all the people that are, that are attending right now that have their needs. And I would pray that you would be with them and help them to meet their needs according to your wisdom. And Lord, we certainly pray that that girl's eye will be okay during the flight and that the doctors in Mexico will be able to uh, take care of whatever the issue is and get her eye back into proper order. Lord, we commit this hour and a half to you. We certainly thank you for the book of 1 Corinthians and it's real delight to be in it. And we would pray that we would be handling it properly. And if anything is said that isn't correct, please alert us to that so we can get it corrected next week or that somebody will find it and say, I don't need to listen to that. I'm going to go with what your word says. But we would pray that's not the case and that we would be in accord with your word. We certainly love you and we praise you and we exalt you and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
All right, we're in 114. What's that? Oh, did I do Romans too? All right, forget this Romans. If you're watching, it's 1 Corinthians. See, I'm all over the place. 1 Corinthians. I'm still in the book of Leviticus with my sermon. Cor in, cor in the ends. All right. All right. Yeah, we're in 1 Corinthians 114. Uh, all right. Yeah, I am confused. I do it all the time. That's I, I, because I'm, I'm answering questions still from Leviticus. I answered some today. As a matter of fact, I sent the guy every Leviticus sermon I did and said, here, you can read those. And uh, so I've got that on my mind. And so I, I type that when I'm doing numbers. And then, of course, I'm still in Romans. So sorry. Sorry. Um, okay. 1 Corinthians 114. Right. Back it up. Back it up. 13. Okay. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? 14. I am thankful that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. Okay. Uh, I wonder if we'll get to 17 today. All right. In what seems an unusual statement at first, Paul notes his great thanks to God that he didn't baptize any of those at Corinth with the exception of a few he will name. He will give the reason... In the verses ahead, though, and we will see that it bears directly on what he has said in the previous three verses concerning divisions and contentions. If Paul was the one to have baptized all of these people, then those who were instigating the contentions could state that he was setting himself up as some type of a figurehead to be more greatly honored or followed. Everybody follow the logic there? Because when we get down to verse 17, I'm going to give you a point that people use about baptism from these verses 14 through 17 and it is a nonsensical point at best it's nonsensical but that's fine people disagree i just think that it is absolutely bad handling of the bible like uh, it's uh goes along with what we would call hyper dispensationalism we all know what dispensationalism is we got the seven dispensations of time hyper dispensationalism ew bollinger one of my favorite scholars okay he was a hyper dispensationalist just because somebody has something that they think is wrong doesn't mean they're a bad person. I disagree with R.C. Sproul on a lot of issues, but I love him as a Bible scholar, okay? You have to put your little pet peeves aside and not cut people down because they disagree on a point of doctrine which is not salvific in nature or will not lead to heresy, okay? But I'm going to make a point about this, and I probably won't do it in this verse. I'll probably wait till I get down to 17. But um, you see the logic here. Paul didn't want everybody to think that I'm setting up this church I'm in charge and, you know, I baptized all of you and blah, blah, blah. Okay. So instead, he, however, he pursued his job without looking for the notoriety that he, that he could have attached to it by being the chief baptizer of the flock. Okay. So, and that makes logical sense. I, I Unfortunately, I was listening to Andy Scanley one time. I was at a, a meeting. Okay. I was asked to go to a conference over in Orlando and they had like eight bigwigs there. And uh, Andy Stanley was one of them. And boy, he said something in the middle of his talk, and the pastor of that church came out and, and right in front of everybody tore him apart. I won't say what it was, but oh yeah, oh, no, I, I yeah. Well, I'll tell you when that when it isn't running. It's it's well, if you know what the uh, initials B and S stand for, okay, uh, right right during his talk during uh yeah. Anyway, okay, so anyway, the pastor was right. He just took him right out in front of everybody. But um, uh, so. Uh, but he made a good point when he was doing he was what they were trying to do is here's how to make your church big and successful but one of the things he said which makes sense is when you have a church you do for one something you may not be able to do for everyone and his point was that he's got a church of i don't know ten thousand people whatever he says i can't baptize everybody 
people come to the Lord. And so I will once in a while come out during the baptisms, the monthly baptisms or whatever, and I'll baptize somebody. I can't do it for everybody, but I can do it for one. So that was a good point. That's kind of what Paul is saying here. I didn't baptize everybody there. I baptized some though. Okay. The, the point is that people were being baptized. Okay. Uh, we'll get to why I'm stressing this now, but just keep this in mind. Okay. He's not the chief baptizer of the flock. Baptism is one of the most precious and memorable moments in a believer's life. And it certainly is an honor to participate in the baptism of someone. I always try to baptize people if they want it. Man, to me, that is my heart is to say this person now is willing to say, I'm going to follow Jesus Christ in believer's baptism. All right. Now I'll give a couple points about this. We'll get to it. But it's something that is an honor. Okay. It's when you marry two people, it's an honor to do it. It's just, you know, when people ask me, will you marry me? I try to always make it to do that for people. There are times where maybe I won't be able to in the future, but I always try to do it. Somebody asked me, how many people are you married to? what's that? <laughs> oh yeah. How many people am I married to? Quite a few actually. Um, but at, I had a friend that I know from Facebook. She's from Chicago and she wanted to get married in Jacksonville. Would you marry us? So mom and I drove up to Jacksonville and married him and drove back down the same day. So it was, you know, it's something I try to do, but there may be a point where I just can't do it. But um, are you bleeding? Your sock has got spots all over. Are you okay? No, no, no. Oh, no, okay. You're not bleeding. I just want to make sure you're not bleeding. Um, I, you have a vein popped or something, and you're sitting there leaking out your precious fluids. Okay. Um, so anyway, it's an honor to baptize and participate in the baptism with people. Even if you're not the one baptizing, it's nice to be there when somebody gets baptized. It's a celebration. Okay. So um, this is why families often gather around, take pictures, Special care is often used to decide who will get the honor of conducting the rite. It could be comparable in importance to choosing who will marry a couple or perform a funeral. Okay. It just is something that you will always remember as something I had the honor of being a part of. Regarding this highly notable honor of conducting baptisms, Paul says that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. Crispus, can we help you, ma'am? Crispus was the ruler of the synagogue in Corinth, as is noted. Come here, I want to show you something. Crispus was the ruler of the synagogue in Corinth, as is noted in Acts 18, verse 8. So uh, I just want her to come up here and come here, come here, turn around, face the camera. I want to, I don't know if they can see you, so you better sit on my lap. This is my wife, and she's wearing a grace shirt. Okay, yes. this came from Charlie Missy just a couple weeks ago. She sent it to her. I hope you can see it. Anyway, we want to thank Charlie Missy for it. And if you want a gray shirt to send to somebody, please uh, let me know. I'll send you her email address and her website, and you can uh, get one of those for people. She also has all kinds of other things. She's got um, necklaces and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, that's my plug for Charlie Messy. Okay, so um, thank you, Charlie. That was a very nice gesture. Um, okay, so Acts 18.8, we'll go there really quickly, and uh, it, we'll just see who this person is. Acts, what did I say, 18.8 or 8.18? I think I said 18.8. Okay, so I went too far. 18 verse 8 says, um, Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. Okay, this is something that they were doing. Now, that was Acts 18. All right, when did Paul's ministry technically start in the book of Acts? 13. It goes from 1 to 12, Peter, 13 through 28, Paul. So right there, that shows you the point I'm going to make about hyper-dispensationalism is not correct. It is incorrect. All right. If you have somebody telling you, because we have people that have been in this church that have brought this up, 
very recently, if you know what I'm talking about, uh, it, they're talking about, is it necessary to baptize? Well, the Lord said to do it. So I'll get to the point in a couple verses, but I'm, I'm stressing this now so that when I talk about this issue, you understand that what they are taught is incorrect and don't get swayed by this incorrect doctrine. Okay. That was Acts 18. It was during Paul's ministry. We're going to have more of it said right here in the book of 1 Corinthians. Yes. You know, we're slighting him a little bit. Chapter 9 is what he talked about three different times with different people. What are you talking about? Paul in Acts. Chapter 9 is when he was converted. Well, yeah, that's right. I'm talking about the, the, the progression. Know, yeah, but, but, but you're right. He was converted in 9, but he didn't do anything. He was not really in the picture until Acts 13. And that's when the patterns start to show from Peter to Paul. This happens, this happens. But you're right. He was actually introduced in Acts chapter 9. And so from Acts 9 until um, uh, 13, you have this transition going on in Paul's life. He's learning. He went back to his hometown. He seems to have fallen off the scene for a while. But you really had to be here for the Acts studies to understand what is going on in the book of Acts. But it is marvelous. And it, it, it shows you the dispensational model. It also shows you the uh, transition from Jew to Gentile. It, it was really a marvelous three years, I think we put in that book. But what's that? He went, he went to school. He was in school for a while. That's right. Okay, so um, uh, the baptism by Paul from Acts 18.8 certainly made sense as the ruler of the synagogue and a person in prominent position to convince others of the truth of the gospel he himself would then be qualified to perform the right on others okay so this guy was uh, baptized all right and then he is now because he's in this position as once being the chief of the synagogue and now he's probably the chief of the messianic synagogue he is going to be baptizing others that wasn't paul's job what was paul's job to preach the gospel. He was an apostle of Jesus Christ, okay? But Acts, uh, I'm sorry, um, verse 17 of this particular chapter, people take it and they take it to an unintended extreme, okay? Paul was an apostle. His job was to get out there and share the gospel with people. When he, we'll wait. Okay, so um, in the truth of the gospel, he himself would then be qualified to perform the right on others. That's speaking of Christmas. It would make no sense to not baptize him because then who would do so? But once he was baptized, then he could take over this solemn responsibility for others who chose Christ. See the logical part? Paul says, I baptize this person, but I didn't baptize many others. Well, there was a good reason because there was nobody else to do it at the time. Paul wasn't the chief baptizer. He was going to baptize somebody, though, so that they could become the chief baptizer. All right. Concerning Gaius. There is a Gaius seen in Acts 19 during a time of trouble in Ephesus. Then a Gaius of Derby is noted in Acts 20. Paul notes a Gaius in Romans 16.23 also. And finally, there is a Gaius to whom the letter 3 John is written to. The Gaius being referred to by Paul here is certainly the one mentioned in Romans. And he may be the one whom John wrote to as well. He was Paul's host, and so he probably baptized him personally because of the care he had taken for him as his host. As a side note to Paul's statement here, baptism in the New Testament always follows conversion. The doctrine of infant baptism, though going back to very early times in the church, is not a scriptural tenet. It's not in any way, shape, or form. There's nothing in, even in the book of Acts, which people say, be baptized, you and your household, it's not speaking of infant baptism. It's speaking about people that have believed in the household. Okay. It, otherwise, there would be a contradiction in Scripture. It always follows belief. Okay. 
the claim by adherence to infant baptism is that it is comparable to the Old Testament rite of circumcision. Have you ever heard that one? That's what they use. Presbyterians will say, well, this is comparable to circumcision of the Old Testament. This is a complete misunderstanding of the precept, and it cannot be so identified with any teaching in the Bible. Abraham first believed God, and then he was given the right of circumcision for those who followed him. As Abraham is the example of justification by faith, it only follows that those who are justified by faith will receive their external sign after not before that justification, okay? The rest of it is a covenant sign within the covenant community. Somebody is not brought into the covenant community of Christianity. That doesn't happen. That's not something that you find in the Bible. A person is set apart as holy in 1 Corinthians seven fourteen. A child is under the, the uh, believing parents, but there is no covenant right of baptizing a person. And I'll probably talk about this again, but what does baptism do when you have infant baptism? It gives you... What? It gets, it gets them wet. That's true, and it gives them a false sense of security. How many people that have been in the baptize uh, in the uh, Catholic Church that I know of that have personally said to me, "I'm okay. I've been baptized." Yeah. I, I, it has nothing to do with it. But now they believe that because they were baptized, they are secure. It has nothing to do with that. All right. Um, so here we are. Follows those who are justified by faith. Paul's writings in one Corinthians and his statements, even here in the first chapter, fully support the com of baptism only after faith in Christ. If you want to see this completely detailed in a very, very meticulous way, I send me an email and I will send you the link to the sermon. Uh, I think it was probably Genesis chapter 17 when Abraham was circumcised and I went through the entire thing. Does this make a picture for the church, etc.? It's all very clear in that sermon. Detail it very, very clearly. If you want to see it, I'll send you the link to that. You probably just first go and watch the uh, Genesis 17 sermon. And if that's not it, then I'll find it for you. But uh, life application, in whatever capacity we serve the Lord, as an evangelist, a teacher, a preacher, or whatever, it should, should be for the honor of the Lord, not to promote self-notoriety. Paul is an excellent example to follow in this. He was constantly redirecting those around him to... Paul was directing people to Christ. to Jesus. That's right, to Christ. All right. He uh, let's see here. Uh, where was I? As a, oh yeah, okay. To Jesus. In the end, the Lord sees our works, and He will reward us for them. So we don't need notoriety. We don't need to be you know all over the place. Speaking of notoriety, it was so funny. It was so cute this morning. I got to the mall and I did my regular bird feeding out back, and you know threw the bread and the. Um, cut off pieces of all the ham and everything from Anna's and out to these birds. And they just, they know where to go every morning. And then after that, I went to 7-Eleven. Behind 7-Eleven are two dumpsters like this. You got 7-Eleven, you got Davidson's. And I start with Davidson's and I pull out all the recycles and I separate everything. Hey man, I found a bunch of stuff in there today. I mean, a bunch of recycle. We're gonna have pizza this weekend. Anyway, so the people just go back there and they throw stuff in there they shouldn't. And so I pull it out and some of it will go down to scrap all on Saturday. And then I got, I, I don't want to tell you, but I got something that's worth a lot of money. I don't know what I'm going to do with it either. But, oh, I, I'll tell you, I, I think it is. I got to have it uh, looked at first, but it's really cool. Anyway, what? It's not a Picasso, but I'm hoping it's worth a lot because we'll be able to send some money to Isaac. Um, and I, we'll, we'll worry about it later. Anyway, while I'm there, I'm taking all this stuff out and a girl comes out. There's a car parked in front of both dumpsters and it's Thursday. It's pickup day. 
So she opens the door of the car. I said, you know, you need to move that. I said, are you new at 7-Eleven? Oh, I'm, I'm just in 7-Eleven. I said, you need to move that because the guy's going to be here between now and 10 o'clock. And uh, so if he if it's blocked, they'll just pull away and they'll charge you if they have to come back. Yeah, they're, they're peculiar about it. So I said, you need to move that. Well, she said, it's not my car. It's my boyfriend's. And she made an excuse and walked away about four minutes later. Brian, who works in 7-Eleven, walks out and he laughs. He says, he says, I knew it was you. And she said, uh, he said, I said, what? He said, well, some girl came in and she said that there's a bum out back telling me I have to move my car. He's going through the dumpster. <laughs> and he said, don't judge a book by its cover. She said, he, he said, that's probably a, a Bible teacher here in Sarasota. And she said, what? And he said, she started to change everything she was saying. Oh, I didn't mean it like <laughs> Anyway, so he came out, we had a talk, he laughed and they went in and told her and they moved the car. So the dumpster got picked up, but oh, I couldn't believe what was in that dumpster this morning. It was no, 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 no. Only if it's worth something, and then I will tell you. But I, I really think that this is, I, I think it may be worth a couple hundred bucks. And if it is, hey, bonus. So. Did that turn in the back of your truck? No, it's not in the back of my truck, because if it rains, that would get wet. All the other stuff, the scrap is all back there. And that's what I was doing when you came. I was taking it all apart. Anyway, um, so there you go. Um, he was constantly re redirecting those around him to Jesus. In the end, the Lord sees our works, and he will reward us for them. And that's what got me thinking about a reward in a dumpster. I mean, thank Thank you, Lord. You know, you don't have to. Uh, uh, and plus, it's not wasted. You know, I mean, just go sit down. One thing was one of those backup supply, UPS backup supply. It was the biggest one I've ever seen. It weighed about 85 or 90 pounds. It had lead batteries, car batteries in it. And I'm like, you just throw that in the dumpster. It's going to go out into the dump forever. The car battery, I might get $2 for it, but at least it'll get recycled. So. And handled just, properly. Yeah, handled properly. Absolutely crazy what people do. You know, they, they're moving and they don't want to put it out by the road. They're just too lazy. So they put, yeah, they have to pay. So what do they do? They come behind them all and they throw all their stuff in there. I mean, I found plate sets and, and houses full of stuff, silver, uh, silverware. And yeah, I pull it all out, wash it, take it down the projects. If it's good silverware, I'll find somebody that wants a real silverware set. But, oh, people are crazy. Anyway, let's go on. 115. <coughs> So, no one can say that you were baptized into my name. Okay. Lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. So Paul's putting the, the glory on Jesus. He's saying, this isn't what I came to do. I came to be an evangelist, to be a person to tell people about Jesus. Okay. Paul had a unique commission which transitioned the church from an almost solely Jewish entity into one which was quickly growing in Gentile converts. At some point, a majority of Gentiles would inevitably exist. Thus, the church would be considered a Gentile entity. And this would have been brought about by the instruction and writings of Paul. If he were to have been out baptizing people in large numbers, others who dislike this move to Gentile predominance could easily make the charge that Paul had baptized these people into his own name. See what's going on here? He, the whole point of this. Thus, it, this would become the church of Paul, regardless of whether he directed the disciples to Christ or not. And we see that in churches all over. I go to John MacArthur's church, right? It becomes a status symbol, all right? The, the idea is I go to a church where John MacArthur preaches and he preaches about Jesus. Paul didn't want his name being assigned to these type of things. That's why he's very peculiar and very uh, particular about what he is saying in these verses here. Okay, so uh, thus this would become the church of Paul. 
All right. As noted in verses 10 and 12, such divisions exist in churches today. We talked about that last week. Rightly or wrongly, we identify ourselves among a host of other lines. Some are by name, I'm a Lutheran. Some are by doctrine, I'm a Baptist. Some are by a member of the Godhead other than Jesus. I belong to the Church of the Holy Spirit, right? There used to be one right before uh, you turned down to go to the projects on Myrtle Street. It was triple portion Holy Spirit. And I always thought, I wonder how you get your triple portion there. Yeah, yeah well, you got to figure. Uh, what did what did um, Elijah, uh, Elisha said to Elijah, I'd like a double portion of your spirit. And so they want to outdo Elisha and Elijah. So what does he say? Triple portion Holy Spirit ministry. Oh, I'd love to go in there. You know, people climbing on the walls. Anyway, um, yeah, so uh, that's not there anymore, is it, Tom? Yeah. I don't know. I don't think it is. Okay. Well, I know you pass by there once in a while too. So um, anyway, so uh, yeah, Church of the Holy Spirit. Within the church, there is misdirection, there is division, and there is boasting in individual names. Paul tried to wave this type of thing off from the start by not making the work of Christ about himself. Instead, he proclaimed Christ and he made his soul boasting in the cross of Christ. Where is that recorded? I know you know. Soul boasting in the cross of Christ. Colossians 127, I think. Okay, that's not the one I'm thinking of. I'm thinking of Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Yeah. Quite possibly my second favorite verse in the Bible. My favorite of all is uh, the first seven words in the NIV of uh, Hebrews 12, 2. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. And then you get to Colossians 6, 14, and there you go. That might be my second favorite verse in the Bible. All right. Um, so the what? You mean Galatians. You, whatever I just said, I meant Galatians. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. In some ways, divisions are inevitably uh, inevitable, and they're even healthy. When Paul had Barnabas, when Paul and Barnabas divided over an argument, they were able to accomplish twice the work that had been previously done. So they had a, what in the Greek is a paroxysm. It was a real fight almost coming to blows. They divided, all right? Sad, it's a sad testimony in, in the Bible. It's recorded there, and there's no record of them reconciling. Paul did reconcile with John Mark, who was the source of the problem later, as is recorded in, I think, Timothy, yes. But uh, there's no record of Paul and Barnabas ever reconciling, but they got twice the work done. And one took Timothy, uh, yeah, one took John Mark, and the other one took, was it Timothy he took? Uh, no, it Silas. was uh, Silas. Thank you, Silas. Thank you. And uh, off they went. They got twice the work done. So uh, let's see here. Dividing from a church because it is straying from the truth of Christ is also a good thing. However, in the process of division, care needs to be taken that the division doesn't produce another idol. Paul's example is one that will keep such things from occurring. His continuous boasting in Christ is the right approach at all times and in all all seasons. Life application, he who boasts, let him boast in the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, I'm going to tell you, it was two boxes full, full of baseball cards. Oh my God. Full. And they are, they are in mint condition and literally full of them. Hundred dollars? Well, I don't know. I mean, I have no idea what they're worth, but it was literally full of them, and they are in mint condition. Will be a comma. Well, whatever. I, 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 I can't retire from them, but they were they, and they're older. I mean, they're you know. So I'll let you know if they're worth anything, and if they are, we'll have a pizza party. How's that? Okay, life one sixteen. 
Well, I'm glad that he said that because I was afraid you're all going to say, well, they don't do that anymore. And oh, my they gosh. Do. Yeah. Oh, well, whatever. Okay, whatever. I, I'm just so excited because and all these old, old baseball magazines, they're, these baseball magazine probably hasn't been published in years. All these old magazines. I'm like, Some wife has been waiting all these, all these years to get rid of that stuff. Well, they got rid of it. No, that ain't going to happen. Okay, go ahead. 116. Question though, it starts with uh, it's in parentheses. Mine is not, but yeah, go ahead. Okay, all right. It, it is a parenthetical thought though, so yes, go ahead. Oh, okay, is it shown that way in the Greek? Uh, well, the Greek doesn't have parent. You just have to know it's parenthetical. Okay. Yeah. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not. I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. Okay, there you go. As Paul is putting forth his thoughts for the epistle. He realizes that when he had just stated, I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, wasn't exactly correct. Okay, we do this all the time. You know, I'm in church and I'll say something and then later I'll think, oh, I said something. was, And so I will correct it either during the class or next week. I'll get a note and I'll say I was wrong on this. Because you don't want to be a liar and you don't want to say something that is incorrect, but your mind isn't always thinking of things. And to Paul, this was a secondary issue. Right? So he doesn't want to be perceived as a lot. Oh, well, you baptized that guy and you said you didn't in a letter. Right? So that now he's, he's correcting himself, right? Which shows you the Holy Spirit uses our fallible nature even in his writings. We see that with Jeremiah. We see it at other times. Well, he's doing it with Paul as well. Okay? So I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. That wasn't exactly correct. And so he amends his thoughts here using the Greek term de, D E. As Vincent's word study indicate, he says, day has a slightly corrective force. It would then be something like writing, I only like chocolate ice cream. Oh, and I also like vanilla and strawberry and durian too. Oh, it isn't an untruth, yeah. but a thought based on reflection. Okay, okay and that's the, what he's doing there. The, uh, the scribe is always writing his... Tertius. Probably said, well, wait a second. Yeah, wait, you baptized that other guy. Yeah, oh, wait a minute, I better... Yeah, yeah. exactly. In the process of his thoughts came the reminder of the household of Stephanus, and suddenly he realized that he had also baptized them. In 1 Corinthians 16, verse 15, Paul will call the household of Stephanus the firstfruits of Achaia. They had readily come to Christ at the first preaching of the gospel, and Paul had baptized them. Because it was at such an early point, certainly before any formal church or meeting place had been established, it had simply slipped his mind. Then, to ward off any other omissions as intentional deceit, he finally adds in, besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other. There could have been someone that he had simply forgotten about. Maybe there was someone there in Stephanus' household that wasn't a member of the family or servants who could later state that what Paul said wasn't accurate. He has thus preempted such a charge. In the coming verse, he will explain further the reason for his detailed words concerning baptism. This is a good verse to stop and consider what household means in connection with baptism. This is especially needed because of the doctrine of infant baptism. I mentioned it a minute ago. It's often tied to this and several other verses because the term household seems all-inclusive. You and your household be baptized, right? And then people run with that. The word rendered as household is oikos and generally covers two greater concepts of one, a house, the material building, and two, a household, family, lineage, or even a nation. Depending on the context, it refers to any of the following, descendants, families, family, home, homes, house, household, households itself, 
palaces or place. This is what Paul says in Titus 1 verse 10. Let me take you there. Titus 1 verse 10. He says, for there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. <clears throat> Speaking of those who are disruptive and destructive, he says that they subvert whole households. That is in verse 11, whose mouths must, must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they out not for the sake of dishonest gain. All right. In this, he uses the adjective translated as whole in order to show that the entire households can be swept up into false teachings. If the term households with an S was intended as all-inclusive for baptism, including infants, one would think that a similar adjective would be used. Being baptized into the faith is surely as important as being apostatized, right? So you see the logic? He doesn't say your whole household. He just says household, all right? Therefore, the term household, which is a general term, should be considered in a general sense, unless it is accompanied by an adjective to further refine what is being stated. It is only a presupposition at best to state that infant baptism is intended by passages such as this one. Further, because baptism reflects a personal commitment to the Lord, it should be on the more conservative interpretation of household than an interpretation should be made. It is general in nature, not specific and all-inclusive. Always go to the conservative side in your theology. You get to the liberal side, everything starts to unwrap, okay? That doesn't mean conservative to the point of adding things into the Bible, which is a real problem with ultra-conservative churches. Oh, you have to wear bonnets on your head. You have to do this. You have to worship no at dancing. this time. And what's that? No dancing. no dancing. You got to wear shoes to church. Oh, I mean, it goes on and on and on, right? So, okay. So uh, let's see here. Finally, the wording in this verse, which shows that Paul isn't completely sure of a matter, meaning who he had baptized, in no way diminishes the doctrine of divine inspiration. Just because something isn't known by the human author of an epistle has no bearing on whether or not the Holy Spirit knows. There are 10 jillion times, 10 jillion things and more known to the Holy Spirit, which are unknown to any human. What he chooses to include in his word is at his prerogative, including Paul's day, and then giving a comment on that, including human failings and uncertainties, such as Paul exhibited here. Life application. Seemingly insignificant verses found in the Bible often contain some of the most theologically important concepts for us to consider. As you read the Bible, take time to think on why, why certain things are mentioned and why the Holy Spirit allowed their inclusion into the Bible. Don't listen to liberal-minded scholars who would try to diminish the importance of what is stated, but think on what God is conveying to you. Every word is pure, every word is perfect, and it is given to us to learn more about God's wonderful plan for us. Don't let people diminish the, you know, the, I won't say it. I won't get into it now. 117. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Okay, or this one says, or be made of no effect. Okay, now if I don't talk about in this verse what I want to talk about, I'll add it in at the end of this verse. But we'll see if I, I don't remember, it's been years since I typed this commentary. In Matthew 28, 19 and 20, oh, I'm probably going to talk about what I want to talk about. We read what is known as the Great Commission. Go therefore... Go ahead. Go therefore to all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teach them all things that I have commanded you. Lo, I am with you always to the end of the world. Okay, you added in an extra verse, and that's good. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. Okay, so go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Okay, that's Matthew 28, 19. Was that before or after the resurrection? after and it was before he ascended into heaven okay i'm going to make a point about hyper dispensationalism based on this right here okay however this doesn't mean that paul is being disobedient in his words to the corinthians when he says that i wasn't called to baptize okay rather he has already indicated that he baptized some at corinth and surely others elsewhere in addition to this there are those who are evangelists there are those who disciple there are those who serve in other ways etc even Jesus is noted as not being the one to baptize. Remember that? Mm -hmm. uh, he didn't baptize others during his ministry. This is seen in John 4, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples. So for Paul to say, I'm not here to baptize, is not being disobedient to the word because he did baptize somebody so that they could turn around and baptize, baptize others. others. Thank you. Paul's primary mission then wasn't to baptize, just as Jesus' primary mission wasn't to baptize, but it was a part of his ministry. People baptize. And I would imagine, this is just speculation, and if it is, think of the person that can say this for all eternity. I would imagine Christ baptized some of his people so that they could turn around and baptize other people. So those people that were baptized by Christ, God incarnate. I, I think about it. Every time I come to that thought, it stops me to think of the honor. And they had no idea when it was happening, what was going on. Can you imagine? For all of eternity, you can say that God himself baptized me. Right? God incarnate baptized me. What an honor. I, I can't think of anything, anything that would be more incredible than the knowledge of that after the resurrection. And they're standing there saying, but he baptized me. He condescended to come into a body and he added that in as part of what he did. For, I, I just, I can't get beyond it. Anyway, Paul's primary mission wasn't to baptize. He probably had others do this. It was time consuming, especially because full immersion baptism is what the Bible implies. Also, it is intended to follow acceptance of Christ. Paul as an evangelist would move often, whereas those in the church would be able to baptize new converts at a convenient time and location. Even in the, uh, yeah, even if Paul moved on, okay, yeah. And also, as he has already noted in his previous comments, baptizing people can lead to divisions and strife. This would be especially so if a competent visitor came to town. If he was gaining converts and baptizing them also, there would be divisions in allegiances, something that actually occurred at Corinth, even without baptisms added in. We've already gone through those verses. Rather than being one who baptized, Paul said his commission was to, and he tells you, this is my commission, to preach the gospel. That's right. And this is what he did tirelessly. The record of Acts especially shows that Paul preached to kings, jailers, nobles, and common folk. He preached at an open-air stadium and in synagogues. He preached with words and he preached with actions. He preached to Jew and he preached to Gentile. He met each person on their level and he never missed the chance to tell them the wondrous news of salvation through Jesus Christ. This was his main calling and the motivation behind his very life. And as he preached, he did so not with wisdom of words. In other words, he used the common language and experiences of those around him. 
It is noted that the Greeks were a society of deep philosophy and mental contemplation. They're still known for that 22, 2300 years later. They were often practiced in smooth and oral deliveries and were able to tie in high emotional peaks in order to capture the attention and hearts of their listeners. There's many pastors out there that are exactly the same way. They know when to raise their voice. They know when to have the music play at a certain time. Everything is geared for appearance. Okay, that was not Paul's way of doing things. It's very, oh yeah, here it is. It's very common in modern churches. Once again, there is an appeal to emotion and there is a high value placed on flashy deliveries and impressive effects to pull the audience in. It's just a very common thing. And you get pulled in, you think, wasn't that a great sermon? And then you don't remember what you talked about and you have no theology at all. Now, I'm not saying all churches are like that. Some of them have great orators with great doctrine, okay? There are a lot of them out there, but there are most of them nowadays are focusing on the theatrics because the they don't focus. That's right. They don't focus on the doctrine. Right. You're losing doctrine by having the show. Paul dismissed these tactics. The messenger of Christ isn't one of philosophical depth or emotional manipulation. It is a message of the consequences of sin and the mercy of God in dealing with those consequences through the cross of his own son. For this reason, Paul dismissed the dramatic, and then he says, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. In other words, if people can be satisfied in their lives without the cross, then that satisfaction would seemingly negate the need for it. And as I said, there are a lot of churches that negate the need for the cross because they've satisfied you in a different way. Some of them almost completely satisfy you with music. I love music. I listen to music all day long, except for Sunday when I'm sermon typing, Monday when I'm doing my devotional and sermon practice, and Sunday when I'm doing the church video work. Other than that, I have music going all day long, all, every day. That's all I have. I love music. But that is not where we should get our theology from, and it's not what should drive us. It, what should is scripture, okay? Anyway, um, where is it? The cross demonstrates that there are real consequences for sin and that a real penalty is therefore demanded. When a church takes down a cross, it's saying that the penalty for sin doesn't matter as much as it once did in this building. I've been in churches that have done that. Paul's only desire was that his message would be clearly and competently stated so that those who heard it would not be misdirected by a false gospel and a belief that the cross was somehow unnecessary for them. In fact, Paul's desire to stick to the very basics when transmitting his message made him appear extra extraordinarily boring. We're going to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and we'll see that. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. You can tell he wasn't a great orator. He wasn't there to flash his presentation. He said in 10.10, for his letters, they say, speaking of Paul, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is contemptible. It sounds like Moses couldn't speak, was a terrible speaker, and yet he's the great lawgiver. And here we have the second person who's defining the law given by Christ, which is the new covenant, not really a law. But Paul is showing the grace which is coming through Christ. So you have this parallel between Moses and Paul. His bodily presence is weak and his speech is contemptible. Okay, so that's the way he was perceived. This almost sounds like a theologian who's locked away in a library and only comes out once in a while to share his new discoveries. Weighty and powerful letters, but contemptible speech because he never bothered with training and flashy oration. But this is exactly what is needed in our Christian world today. 
not ostentatious, ostentatious sermons with showy backdrops, but sound theology and words directed to Jesus and to his work. Okay, before I give our life application, I did not talk about the whole issue that I wanted to talk about, but hyper-dispensationalism says that the church actually started with Paul in Acts chapter 13. The church did not start at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. First, that's completely wrong because there's no distinction made in that. I've heard this many times. There's one of my very favorite teachers of all. I'm not going to give his name because I'll offend two people in here. I love this guy, but he teaches this doctrine that the church started with Paul and it didn't start with Acts chapter 2. Okay, he's one of my favorite teachers and he's wrong about this. The church started with the giving of the Holy Spirit that was given. It continued to be given to another people group and another people group. And if you go through the book of Acts very meticulously, you will see this. Okay, there's no time where it says, okay, this is now ending and we're going to go to this. And then later we're going to get back to this. Okay, it is true that the church went from predominantly Jewish to predominantly Gentile. That's what Acts is showing us. It is not true that that church started at a certain point here and not a certain point here. Okay, that is untrue. Okay couple places to determine that is Acts 1 verses 6 and 7 when they went to Jesus and they said Lord are you now at this time right going to restore the kingdom to Israel right and what did he say he said it's not for you to know the times or the season so he is saying that you are doing something different now it's not kingdom so we cannot say that Acts 1 through 12 are kingdom theology which is what these hyper-dispensationalists will do. Because he says, that is not being considered now. The kingdom is some other time. There is a church that is being built right now. You don't understand what's going on. You don't understand that the Jews are going to wholly reject me, and this church is going to go from Jew to Gentile. The second point is, and this one is a clencher. I don't care what anybody says about it. They will never change my mind on this doctrine because they are wrong, and this is the clincher. The clincher is that Jesus gave the Lord's Supper when? Before his crucifixion, okay, he gave the directions for the Lord's Supper, and that is repeated almost verbatim. Not, It's not verbatim, but it's repeated from the book of Luke where? We say it every single week. I say it every single Sunday to you. 1 Corinthians chapter, I'll give you a hint. 11. Yeah, thank you. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Okay. Say it every single week. 1 Corinthians 11. Paul cites Jesus' words prior to the crucifixion that this is the new covenant in his blood. Okay. That means that everything that happens after his blood is shed is new covenant. When he came out of the grave, was he still under old covenant or was he under kingdom theology? No. He was speaking new covenant, Matthew 28, verses 18 and 19, which I just had Burke quote to you. Do they come before or after his night of passion at the, uh, when he instituted, it come after, right? He, he gave the uh, Lord's Supper. He was crucified, but the Lord's Supper was given in anticipation of his crucifixion. And then he came out of the grave in fulfillment of that. And now that Lord's Supper is used every time. And then he gave the order to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay. This one came before this one. And they say that this one doesn't apply, but this one does. That makes absolutely no sense at all. Jesus spoke those words to the church. And what did he say in there? Go baptize every Jew. Is that what he said? He said, go and baptize the nations. He is thinking 
church. He is thinking of all the peoples of the world. Do not listen to hyper-dispensationalism. It is incorrect. The problem with having that as bad doctrine isn't that it is salvific and you're going to lose your salvation, but it leads people down a wrong path. And anytime you take a wrong path in this word, you've taken the, the string and you've started to pull the tapestry apart. And eventually the whole tapestry falls apart because of that. You don't want to go down that path. They got dispensationalism correct, and then they add in something that is not within the parameters of Scripture, okay? We baptize in this church because this is what the Lord commanded us to do, and he commanded it as the nations. Peoples of the nations are to do this. The fact that Jews aren't doing it is because they rejected him. They are under punishment, and they are waiting to come out of that punishment. It's being set up right now. It's being set up in our lifetime. But do not listen to hyper-dispensationalist theology. It is incorrect. It is bad theology, and it will lead to other extremely bad theology if you hold to that and start, like I said, the inevitable consequence of that is to say, we don't baptize, and therefore, we will not take the Lord's Supper. Everybody got that? Mm -hmm. And once you do that, you have really departed from sound theology. So uh, one thing leads to another. Don't let that... With, with, that, with the folks that do that, aside from their unending desire to argue, argue, is that the Bible, although it is placed in a linear type thing and you can read it from beginning to end and stuff like that, the, the chronological is, yep. is different from it's that. It's all over the place. And, and you can't... You can't just say, because I have finished this book and moved to another one, that there's nothing in relationship to the following book that it will proceed. Absolutely right. It's, it, it's a tapestry. It is a say. tapestry. And, and, it is and, and, woven together. It's very specific, and you have to be able to understand the entire... That's why I say, you have to know the Bible in order to make a decision about somebody's doctrine of the Bible. I said it either in this class or last Sunday. I don't remember which it was, but I know people that read book after book after book about the Bible. It was Sunday, and they have never read the Bible, or maybe they've read the Bible one time, and that is that is criminal. Because when you get your doctrine from what somebody says about the Bible and you don't know what the Bible says, where do you go? Where do you go? You have to know the Bible before you trust somebody's doctrine. And if you're taking my word at it, if you're in this class and you don't know your Bible, then I will say it, shame on you. Because you're taking my word for something and you haven't even read the basis of what you're being taught. You should be reading this word every single day of your life and you should never stop. Old Testament and New, divided up differently. Start with uh, Genesis through Revelation, then read Genesis through Malachi, and at the same time in the evening, read Matthew through Revelation, and then read every first, twenty, third, uh, and 45th book, and then the second, and it, like that. Follow patterns. Read it a thousand different ways. Read it the books backwards. Go from Revelation to Genesis. Read this word always, because anytime you don't know what's being taught you, and you accept what you're being taught, you are responsible for your bad doctrine. Have a wonderful evening. Enjoyed that uh, concert, okay? Thank you. All right. Take good care. Bye. Anyway, um, uh, I, I, I'm just adamant about this. Go ahead. Listening. The what? Listening to the Bible. Listening to the I Bible. I love it. He's got an NIV Live Bible, and he's listening to it. Look, he's just going crazy over it, okay? I've been listening to it. I've been listening to it, and the more I listen to it, 
The more I'm enjoying it. I okay. tell you, it's absolutely because don't you process it completely. Don't do that. No, yeah. no, don't do that. Yeah. You become almost interactive with it yourself. It really is wonderful. If you don't have a live Bible, get one. If you can't afford one, email me and I will buy you one. Okay. I, I want everybody to have the Bible going on in their life all the time. Because if you don't know this word, you are trusting somebody else's evaluation of it, and that is criminal. Okay, let's go on. Um, uh, where was I? I? I don't. Oh, life application. There is one Lord and one gospel. The good news is that Jesus Christ went to the cross to pay our sin debt, and that there is no other way to heaven than through His work. That is it. There is no other way. Sin has real consequences that must be considered in light of His cross. Let us not get so caught up in the hype of gaudy churches and their presentations that we miss the wonder of the Word of God. The Word is what matters. Everything else, everything is secondary. If we never play another song in this church, I don't care. I love hearing them. Don't get me wrong. And on Sunday, I've got, uh, uh, because it's uh, uh, Christmas is coming, during the break, I've got some Christmas songs I'll play. I love music. But I got to tell you, the only thing that matters is this Word and your understanding of this Word. Because someday somebody's going to ask you a question and you're going to tell them what you know. And if what you know is not in accord with this word, then you are teaching them wrong. You are now more responsible, James 3 verse 1. And plus, they're going to have the wrong information. Know what you need to say. And if you don't know what to say about presenting the gospel, I've had four people in the past two weeks email me and say, would you send me tracks? And I have sent tracks to them. And now they're handing out tracks because that's not their specialty. It was Paul's specialty. It's not everybody's. But tracks are there. They're available to be handed out. They don't cost anything. You just hand it to somebody. If they throw it in the garbage in front of you, I had a lady, I used to hand out Gospels of the John. You know, I'd buy them a dollar each and I'd hand them out to people, the Gospel of John. I was at Home Depot and I gave one to the lady at the counter and she took it and threw it right in the garbage in front of me. I said, well, that's her choice. You know, whatever. You know, that's just the way it is. Okay, so we're going to go on. 118. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Boy, isn't that the truth. But to us, who are being saved, it is the power of God. Power. The power of God. Verse 118, for the message of the cross is a phrase which needs to be considered in the context of what Paul just noted, which is the preaching of the gospel. In Greek, he now says, hologas gar staro, for the doctrine word of the cross. In this phrase, the second article is definite and it is emphatic. The message is the essence and the very purpose of the cross he is referring to. If Christ died on the cross and we don't tell anybody about that, Christ's death means nothing. It means absolutely nothing. Unless somebody gets out there and tells what Jesus did, what he did means nothing. Got people over in Papua New Guinea that are waiting for Ray and Jess to show up. And until they're fully funded, those people are not going to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And to them, it means nothing. They will die apart from Christ because people were not willing to fund two people and their three young children that are willing to give their lives up to tell people about Jesus, right? If the word doesn't get out, the cross means nothing, okay? Therefore, the cross is the gospel. But it isn't a piece of wood which is erected in the form of an instrument of torture. The cross has been used on criminals and martyrs alike thousands of thousands of times in human history. On the day Christ was crucified, there were two others on crosses next to him, weren't there? The instrument of the cross itself then is not what Paul is referring to. Too often we take the cross and we say, 
when Paul says the cross, I boast in the cross, he's speaking specifically about the cross of Christ. That's right. He's not speaking about a cross because Arminians, you know what, during the prophecy update this past week, I was speaking about the Holocaust and about the Armenian persecution, and I got a picture of the Armenian persecution of Armenians in the early 1900s being crucified. Miles of people on crosses being crucified. The cross is a piece of wood. It's the cross of Christ that matters. Okay, so um, where are we? It may seem foolish to the world around us. Oh, let me go back here. I missed something. Yeah. Um, the instrument of the cross itself, then, is not what Paul is referring to. It is also not the message of the one who follows Christ, picking up and carrying his cross daily, which seems to be a catchphrase in many churches. In other words, it isn't the burden that we have as a follower of Christ. Though it may seem foolish to the world around us that we would be willing to give ourselves in this way, this is not what Paul is referring to either. The message or doctrine of the cross is the truth that Jesus Christ, God's only begotten son, died on the cross as an atoning sacrifice for those who trust his work. To the world, this message is nonsense because they don't see a sin as a problem. But the cross of Jesus Christ shows that sin is an infinitely great problem problem. It's a huge problem, one of such magnitude that there is no way for us to bridge it in order to be restored to God. Instead, God had to provide the bridge himself. Jesus Christ, fully human, could mediate for his human followers. Jesus Christ, fully God, could mediate to his infinite Father. He's the only bridge that can do this. There is no other God-man. There is no man on this planet, whether it's Muhammad or whether it's Confucius or Lao Tse or any of these other people that can say, I can bridge this gap because they all inherited Adam's sin. They're all fallen and no person can bridge that gap. And I hate to tell you that Aaron, the high priest of Israel, could not breach that gap. He did in picture only of the coming Christ. He did not do it in reality. Everybody got that? The blood of bulls and goats can not take away sin. Thank you. The blood of bulls and goats, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. What he did was picture and typology only. All right? But the message of the cross doesn't stop there. It is true that we believe Jesus Christ is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. But the cross is also the only atoning sacrifice for sin. Apart from the cross of Jesus Christ, there is no other way to be reconciled to God. Because of this, those who aren't in Christ, because of his work, are destined for eternal condemnation. Because they are out of Christ. If you're not in Christ, then you are not atoned by his blood, and you cannot come into the presence of an infinitely holy God. This, this is what is foolish, foolishness to the world. The message of Jesus Christ. The world looks to self for righteousness before God. The cross bestows God's righteousness upon undeserving self, apart from any merit. This glorious cross, this glorious message of the cross, is indeed, as Paul says, foolishness to those who are perishing. The verb for perishing in the Greek is a present participle, which indicates the current process is what is happening. They are on their way to destruction. It is a message of perishing. They are on their way to destruction. Because they find what God has done for them as foolish, they are enemies of God and heading towards a bad end. However, 
Until one dies, they have the opportunity to change the course which they have taken. That's why it's in the present, because anybody can change that present participle as long as there is air going in and out of their lungs, as long as they are alive, as long as they're thinking rational people, they can change that. It is the message of destruction to those who are perishing. Right now, it's happening. But guess what? That was me at one point in my life. That was most of us. We were at one point perishing, and all of a sudden we said, I need this message. But it's foolishness until we realize that we need it. And then all of a sudden, the light clicks on you say, I need Jesus, right? In contrast to them, Paul then explains the believer state when he says, but to us who are being saved. So you've got the perishing and you've got those who are being saved. There are those who perceive the doctrine of the cross as foolishness and they are on their way to destruction. But there are those who believe the message and they have moved to another category, being saved. Again, this verb is a present participle, which indicates that we are in the process of what is occurring. Unlike those who don't believe, though, this status will not change. The Bible consistently proclaims eternal salvation, and so the believer's ongoing process is one of a certainly happy ending, intended by that act of faith in the ability of the Lord to completely save us through his cross. 100% absolutely sure and guaranteed. Okay, he gave us a guarantee. That guarantee means guarantee. If it doesn't mean guarantee, then whatever Jesus, whatever else Jesus said is irrelevant. Whatever else this word says is irrelevant. If a guarantee in the Bible is not a guarantee, then everything else, just take this book and don't bother reading anymore. Okay, I am absolutely that adamant about eternal salvation. You know, I was thinking today about, I, I've said this during the, the Leviticus sermons, and I don't know if everybody processed it, and I think I might have even said it during the number of sermons. If you think of Israel, talking about collective Israel, the people, as a picture of individual salvation, you will get it, okay? Are all Jews saved? No. Will God forever save Israel, the people? He has promised that they will always be a people. They will always be saved. He will never reject them. Okay, he said that in the Old Testament. He says it in the New Testament. He says it in Romans 9 through 11. We talked about that in the Roman study. Okay, if God told them as a people, I will never reject you, and he rejects them, is God faithful? Absolutely not. Okay. Israel collectively, not Israel individually, Israel collectively is a picture of individual salvation. God has given them a promise. I will never break my word with you. And this is why I think the doctrine of losing your salvation, there's a couple reasons why. One is because somebody has a family member that is saved. And that family member walks away from the Lord and they get into drugs and they say, that's a damnable doctrine. That's a doctrine right from the devil because this person threw his life away. That isn't the doctrine's fault. That is the person's fault. That person has not lost his salvation, but he sure lost his joy and he's probably going to lose his life. But it does not change the doctrine. The doctrine's stance. It doesn't change the doctrine. It is not the doctrine's fault. The same thing is true with Israel. God has made this promise to collective Israel as a picture of individual salvation. When he says that he will preserve Israel and we look at Israel of today still being there, then we can say, I am certain that God is going to keep his promise to me. And as I was going to say, if people 
think that the church has replaced Israel, then I can understand where people would think that the doctrine of eternal salvation is wrong. Because he rejected the people he said he wasn't going to reject. Right. And so we have taken their place. Well, then they could say, well, now we've taken them, so we're still Israel and it's still ongoing. But they know in their mind that's not correct. They know in their mind that they are not Israel. There's a point where they knew that and they had to be taught that they have, because all of these scholars of ages past didn't understand what God was going to do with Israel of today, right? But in their mind, they're saying, well, God rejected Israel. They're not his people anymore, but he said he wouldn't. And they've got this thing going on. So they could say, well, salvation isn't really eternal. And all these goofy doctrines suddenly come out of it. But if you read the doctrine of the collective people of Israel, oh, Israel, no matter what you do, I will always preserve you. As long as there's stars in the heavens and, you know, the sun and the moon and all he says in Jeremiah, I will preserve you. He's not talking to individuals, but that's a problem with the individuals because they think I'm Israel and I'm preserved. And so I'm saved. They have missed what God is doing. He is preserving a people for his glory, not individual people for his glory. In the church, he is protecting individual people for his glory. The guarantee stands. If it doesn't stand, if this is not a true doctrine of the Bible, walk away from the Bible. I got to tell you what, I, I would, if I thought that I could be saved and then lose my salvation because of something I did, I'd say, well, that's pretty unfaithful. Uh, not on my part, on God's part, because he said it's guaranteed, right? Whatever, believe what you want on that, but I, I am adamantly 100% certain that God will never reject somebody that has come to him in faith, ever. His choice of words here, too, is interesting. Go ahead. Those who are perishing. Right. Present participle. Right. They're on those their way. Those who are being, being saved. saved. It's yep. like, okay, we're still in our sin sack bodies that are going to perish. Present participle. We are being we are saved. Being saved. We're in the process we, of being we saved. Be we have gone from one to the, that's, we will be pulled out of the mire. That's exactly right. Okay. Um, let's see here. So um, I don't know where I was. I got talking and, uh, uh, oh yeah. Okay. So uh, I'll read that last sentence again. And so the believer's ongoing process is one of a certain happy ending intended by that act of faith and the ability of the Lord to completely save us through his cross. And this is because the cross to us is the power of God. As Paul says in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Everyone who believes. It doesn't say everyone who believes and keeps on believing or any nonsense like that. You believe and you receive the guarantee. It is done. The message of the cross is salvation for everyone who believes. It isn't limited in ability or in scope. Anyone who turns and believes can and will be saved. The limiting factor of the cross is a simple lack of faith. One must turn from self and to Christ, accepting that what God has done is, in fact, not foolishness, but glorious. From that moment on, God's power can and will save the once wayward soul. His power is a lot more than our weakness. A lot more. Life application. Sin is what necessitated the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross of Jesus Christ is what is capable of atoning for sin. No other thing can atone for sin. Therefore, there is no other way to be reconciled to God except through the cross of Jesus Christ. To believe in the message of the cross and be saved. I'm going to take you, before we go on, to substantiate what I just said. I'm going to take you to Amos, the very last words of the book of Amos, and I'm going to read you what it says there. I was saying, Joel, hang on a second here. Amos, there we are. Amos, it's chapter 9. 
I'm going to start at verse 14, 14 and 15. I've said this to people. If this proves false, you can take this book and you can toss it. All right. Okay, Amos. Amos 9.14. I will bring back the captives of my people Israel. They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall also make gardens and eat fruit from them. I will plant them in their land and no longer shall they be pulled up from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. Did that happen after the Babylonian exile? Absolutely not, because they were pulled up again. They were exiled. But he says he will bring them back and he will plant them and no longer will they be pulled up. If they are exiled, if Iran comes in and pushes all the Jews out into the ocean like they want to, you can take your Bible and you can toss it because this is in the word of God and it's signed at the very end of it, says the Lord your God. He will not allow that. Why? Not because of Israel's sake. It's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have blasphemed among the nations. Yeah. That's for his name's sake and he will not allow it to happen. This book will stand. I'm telling you what, no matter what you think about your salvation, no matter what you think about Israel collectively, this book stands. Long before the dispensationalist movement got started, Adam Clark wrote his commentary and John Gill did as well about that verse there. And they both said the same thing. This has never been fulfilled. And there is a time coming when Israel will be back in the land. And they were mocked at. They were scoffed. They, you don't know what you're talking about. We are Israel. We've replaced them. There's no Israel. They had no idea because they didn't trust the source, the power of God. Let's go on. 119. Forward is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Okay. He's citing Isaiah 29, 14 there. As Paul does often in his epistles, he now refers to the scriptures, which, can, which testified to the work of Christ to the wisdom of God, and to the instruction for proper conduct of the redeemed. He says, for it is written. It's right there in scripture. Implies that God's words have been recorded and are absolutely authoritative. In his quoting of the scriptures, he turns to Isaiah 29, 14, and he freely cites it. All right. He shows the overall intent without an exact quote. One, I will destroy. It shows God's sovereignty over the matter to be addressed. It also shows his power to accomplish it as well. No power can stand against the tide of God's judgment. In the case of this verse from Isaiah, it is God's decision to abolish what is otherwise worthless, which is, two, the wisdom of the wise. <laughs> Isaiah's words were directed to Ariel, which is the city of Jerusalem. Ariel means lion of God, okay? The people in the city had moved to religion without relationship to knowledge without wisdom, and to a life of ease without gratitude to the one who provided. That's one of the biggest sins in America today. We have a life of ease, and we are ungrateful to the one who's given us our blessings. And not only are we ungrateful, we're now denying that he's the one that gave him, has given them. We're completely turning away from him. And I'm not talking about everybody. I'm talking about the general tenor of the nation. They felt secure. They were fat, dumb, and happy. Because of this easy life, they felt that nothing could assail them. They boasted that God must be on their side because of the easy life. Sounds like churches in America, doesn't it? God wants you to be blessed. Tell me where that is in scripture in the context of what they're saying. You want that Mercedes? You got to wish it in. Jesus wants you to have that Mercedes. It's absolutely crazy. 
right? But this is the attitude of Israel back then. It's the attitude of people in the world today. We deserve this. We're rich and we must deserve it. God must love us. Huge mistaken thinking. They uh, boasted that God must be on their side, even though they wanted nothing to do with that God. As a side note, this sounds a lot like the nation of America today. There you go. This type of behavior in Jerusalem led to God's decision to bring the enemy against them and to destroy them, as is noted in Isaiah 29, which he says right here. No, oops, too far, Charlie. Verses 3 and 4. It says, I'm going to start with verse 1 so you know who he's talking to. Woe, woe to Ariel, Ariel, the city where David dwelt. Add year to year, let feasts come around, yet I will distress Ariel. There shall be heaviness and sorrow, and it shall be to me as Ariel. I will encamp against you all around. I will lay siege against you with a mound. I will raise siege works against you. You shall be brought down. You shall speak out of the ground. Your speech shall be low out of the dust. Your voice shall be like a medium's out of the ground, and your speech shall whisper out of the dust. The wise would perish in their wisdom. The same can be expected for those today who reject God's offer of the cross. Refer again to the previous verse in 1 Corinthians, which we just went through. Go back and review it if you don't know what we're talking about. Verse and three, point three, and to bring to nothing. Paul's words, and to bring to nothing means that he will so eradicate what he judges that there will be nothing left of it to remember. It will be completely swept away. And four, the understanding of the prudent. It doesn't matter what the issue is, moral, philosophical, religious, governmental, and so on. No matter what the wise or prudent man conceives, if it is against God's divinely established order, and if it is contrary to the message of the cross of Jesus Christ, it will be shown to be deficient. Such things will be utterly swept away by God. Life application. Do we have time? I think we do. What God looks for in his creatures is gratitude, respect for his holiness, a belief that what he has created is good and proper and so on. To shun his word and to shake our fist in his face, especially against his work in Jesus Christ, can only lead to judgment. Coming soon to a tribulation period near you. Yes. Previous verse when you went to Amos. Yes. Two times in those two verses, he said, their land. Their land. So that settles the Arab. Absolutely. Jewish. 100% settled, their land. He says, it is my land and I have given it to them. That means when they're obedient, they can live in it. When they're not, they can't. But it is their land because he has given it yeah. to them. 100%. Okay, 120 and we've got a couple minutes. We'll, we'll make it. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Isn't this a wonderful epistle? I'm telling you what, it's just marvelous. Paul now brings in a set of four questions in response to his quoting of Isaiah in the previous verse. His words are in the rhetorical questions of Isaiah 33, verse 18. He's asking basically the same thing, okay? Let me read that to you, Isaiah 33, 18. I don't think we're going to be long. Might as well be thorough. 33, 18. I just can't go over one and a half hours because if I do, it'll cause trouble for somebody else. Your heart will meditate on terror. Where is the scribe? Where is he who weighs? Where is he who counts the towers? When asking such questions, a dumb silence or an ineffective retort is the expected response. And the same is true with Paul's questions here. His first inquiry is to ask, where is the wise? Here he uses the term sophos, 
which is equivalent to a sage. Anybody notice the term Sophos sounds like the Sophocles. Sophocles or a female named Sophia, oh, Sophia. Wisdom. Okay, right. All right. Uh, this would be the instructor of, an, of knowledge, a person who was filled with supposed wisdom and is sought out to answer the deep problems of life for those around him. But in the end, there are no true answers to the most important questions of life apart from Jesus Christ. This takes us back to what Paul said in verse 18. He said, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. They're high in their philosophical thoughts and they're low in their understanding of the nature of God, right? It is the power of God, uh, but to us, those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Only in Christ Jesus are the answers of reconciliation with God and the granting of eternal life to be found. Building on the terms the wise and the prudent from his quote from Isaiah, he next asks, where is the scribe? The scribe was originally designated as the person who transcribed the law. Eventually, the term was applied to someone who not only transcribed it, but also was knowledgeable and even a scholar of it. With What's that? They taught it. They taught it. That's exactly right. With one exception, the Jewish concept of this word in the New Testament always indicates one who interprets the law. But Paul asks, where is he? On the doctrines of atonement, salvation, peace with God, and so on, the scribe is a completely ineffectual interpreter if he looks to the law apart from Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, I got a point on that in the Prophecy Update coming on Sunday. We have the uh, something happened in Jerusalem this past week with uh, altar dedication. Some of you may know about that, and I'll talk about that. They, they completely have missed the entire point of what's going on, and they've also abused the erection of this altar from their own scriptures. After mentioning the scribe, we're asked to consider the disputer of this age. This is a person we might call a sophist, as you said, one who makes an inquiry into the cause of things and how they relate to other things. Their investigations would follow through with the minutest details and bring them back together into a grand resolution of the great mysteries. They would be the Sherlock Holmes of investigating philosophical matters. That's who these people are. In the Greek mind, these would be the ones who could reason out what seems impossible to reason. Within the Jewish context, it would be those who would split the hairs of every single verse of scripture, looking for the ins and outs of theological inquiries. Where is the disputer? Without reasoning life from the context of Jesus Christ, they're lost in a philosophical conundrum and a set of scriptures which are actually murky and unclear, aren't they? You read the Old Testament apart from Christ, you have no idea what's going on. One Jewish guy said, uh, I think it was uh, uh, maybe a rabbi, but it might not have been that rabbi. He said, this has to be the word of God. It makes absolutely no sense. It is so, nobody would have thought this up. And so it must be the word of God. That was his logic. And it's right. It is the word of God. It makes absolutely no sense. But if you just add Jesus into the mix, all of a sudden, everything makes sense. Right? Uh, let's see here. Where was I? Um, uh, scripture actually murky, unclear. Nothing from either a philosophical or a scriptural investigation makes sense without the plan which God has worked out in Jesus Christ. Instead, the true purpose of existence and of scripture are hidden and unattainable. And finally, in answer to the first three questions, Paul asks another rhetorical question. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? The answer demands a yes response. For all of the immense logic and philosophy, which has been contemplated by the Greeks and many subsequent generations since then, think of that guy in the wheelchair, uh, 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 
Hawkins. Hawkins, Stephen Hawkins. Lots of philosophy, lots of science, lots of contemplating the mysteries of the universe, and he wasn't one step closer to God. Not one. And for all the intensive study of the scriptures by the Jews, there remains no final answer to the greatest questions of all. I'll tell you one that happened this week. I'm reading uh, numbers. I was did numbers, I don't remember, 14-something, I think is what I typed for the sermon this week. And I noticed that it says... Um, Caleb ben Yefune, which is Caleb, the son of Jefuna, okay? And then it says, Yehoshua um, ben Nun. And I said, well, it just caught my eye. I said, why does it say ben Nun? Ben means ben, but it's not pronounced right. It's not ben, it's ben. And I thought, well, I did a search on ben. Guess what? The only time it's used in the entire Old Testament, three times. One for every time Joshua is named, one time for Yeshua, which is Jesus' name from the Old Testament, Yeshua, the son of Josedach from the book of Nehemiah, and one more is Agur, the um, person in Proverbs 31, I think, Proverbs 30 maybe, okay? Only those times. Every other time, hundreds, hundreds, hundreds of times, it says Ben. And I emailed Sergio and I said, is this uh, something because of the structure of the Hebrew? And he said, I no, I have no idea why this is here. He says, that is not standard Hebrew. So I thought, you know, maybe it's just something I'm missing. Why would it be just those three names? Anyway, he went to the rabbis and he read their commentaries and a couple of them actually noticed that this had happened. I don't know any commentary on this anywhere. It just happened to notice it when I was reading the Hebrew, right? And these commentaries were completely, completely wrong. Whatever it is, is pointing to Jesus. You've got Yehoshua, which is a type of Christ. You've got Yeshua, which is Jesus, who is also a type of Christ in Nehemiah. And then you've got this guy, Agur, who is speaking of Solomon, right? The son of the king. So anyway, it's pointing to Christ. I don't know why yet, and I will think it through. But I can tell you 100% that those Jewish commentaries were absolute rubbish. Sergio sent one of them to me with like 20 question marks after. He said, I don't know what this guy's even, where did that come from? It was so bizarre. Because they, they don't have Christ. If you know that it's pointing to Jesus, you'll know that it's correct. That's why very rarely we'll use Jewish commentaries unless they say this points to Messiah. And then you know they're at least on the right track. They usually don't do that. Okay, let's go on really quickly. We got to finish this. Um, I, instead, they can't answer these ultimate questions. Their great learning is actually futile. God has, in fact, made their wisdom foolish. Why? Because even a mere child can understand the simple gospel and be saved. A little child. I've, I've witnessed to children this big, and I've seen them say, I want Jesus. Okay? I know that it's true. All right? Apart from Jesus Christ, the greatest minds in human history lack what the little child can know and be granted. Their futile efforts are well reflected by Isaiah 6, verse 9. i got to be really quick. Don't ask any questions because uh, we're, we're really close to running out of time here. Isaiah 6, verse 9. Okay. Hang on here. Isaiah 19, 8. Okay. 7, 6. One more. Isaiah 6, verse 9. And he said, go and tell this people. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Life application, don't spend all of your life looking for the deeper mysteries of the world without evaluating them through the lens of Jesus Christ. Without him, the greatest knowledge is lacking purpose. Without him, there can be no true wisdom. But once you understand and seek him, then all other wisdom, all of it, finds its proper place. It's all about Jesus. I don't care if it's in the middle of an atom swirling around. It's about Jesus. 
He put everything together so that we would think about our creator, not think about ourselves and how we're going to show how smart we are. We got to pray. Heavenly Father, what a wonderful book. Thank you for the epistle of 1 Corinthians. It's just started out so marvelously, and we look forward to more wonders in the days ahead. And uh, certainly, I forgot to mention Darla at the beginning of this class, but we want to pray for her and her situation. And We'll hope that she is doing well and uh, that her hip is okay. And we'll also add in Mary Jo, who hopefully will be back to church very soon. I think she's going to be strong enough to get here soon, and we'll be delighted to see her beautiful face. And we pray for the other people we mentioned at the beginning of this class. And we thank you for your precious word. It is the power of God unto salvation, and we thank you that we can be saved through it. And I would pray that everybody listening to this right now will simply humble themselves and come to Christ because of what he has done. Great, great are you, O God, and marvelous are your works. We love you and we praise you and we exalt you in Jesus' name. Amen. Back this up. Say goodbye to these folks and get this thing turned off. Uh, break.